1: I'm Stuart Vonney. I'm Martha McCallum. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, November 9th, 2023. I'm Dave Anthony. Israel's war against Hamas is generating a lot of protests here, many of them pro-Palestinians on the left who are upsetting some of their fellow Democrats who call it anti-Semitic.
2: The problem is their fighting's coming from inside the tent. You know, they're, they're chanting genocide, jump. They're not saying genocide, Hamas. You know, they, they have a problem with their own president that they elected. It's our president, but that's their
1: party. We talk with Fox's Brian Kilmeade.
3: I'm Jessica Rosenthal. There were multiple elections this week in various states, and one topic tied multiple races together. It was one that clearly, by the results, drove Democrats to the polls. People are
4: coming out on the issue of abortion. They're not necessarily coming out for their candidates. This issue is one that is transcending a lot more.
5: And I'm Stephen Moore. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown.
1: While Israelis keep waging war against Hamas in Gaza, protesters keep raging here in the U.S. That's in Washington, D.C. Pro-Palestinian demonstrators calling out President Biden for supporting Israel. That's a protester chanting, free Gaza, escorted yesterday out of a House hearing investigating anti-Semitism at colleges.
2: Jewish students are being physically threatened and have legitimate cause to fear for their safety on campuses across the country.
1: That's Democratic Congressman Jerry Nadler. One of his colleagues, Rashida Tlaib, was censured by the House for her pro-Palestinian comments, including a chant that really upset her fellow lawmakers, including Congressman Brad Schneider, one of the 22 Democrats who voted with Republicans to publicly reprimand Tlaib. The statement from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is a rallying cry. It is an aspirational uh, rallying cry, an aspiration for the destruction of the state of Israel. But Congresswoman Tlaib remains defiant.
3: Trying to bully or censor Me won't work, because this movement for a ceasefire is much bigger than one person.
1: And there's no end in sight to the war or the protests. What strikes me is
2: you need a degree of understanding. It is not right or wrong, George Floyd. We know who's right
1: or wrong. Brian Kilmeade co-hosts Fox & Friends, weekday mornings on Fox News Channel, followed by his show on Fox News Radio.
2: It's not uh, equality. It's not something that we can figure out. Women voting, obviously, where we we stand on that, we all nineteen ninety, we get it. But if you want to if you want to protest the Palestinians or support to Israel, you got to do some research. Well, who was there? Why were they there? How many peace agreements were attempted? Who runs the Gaza Strip? Mm-hmm. How did Hamas? Well, how come there's been an election since Hamas won the last one? What's the popularity there? Did they actually do that thing on October seventh? And what was it in response to? Why were the Israelis under the the impression that Hamas was looking to run the Gaza Strip? How were they so in the dark? So having said all that, you need to go to school. And if you come out of that and go, it's really Palestinians are the victims here, I like to hear your argument. I feel bad for all those people that have been forced south. But the reason why they did it is because the people that run the Gaza Strip chopped up and killed 1,400 people and took 244 you, uh, 200 hostage. They have no choice. They are texting. They're dropping flyers. Dave, did you see any texts or flyers to get
1: out of the kibbutzes on October 7th? No. No, there's none of that. But the people who are doing a lot of the protesting... They say it's genocide because there's 10,000 Palestinians killed in we the Israeli strikes. Hamas. Right, according to Hamas. And they say that thousands of them are women and children. And we certainly have seen a lot of civilians fleeing in their in UN shelters and all. So they believe that they are the real victims in all this at this point. So how do you stop that issue or make it? I mean, they, how do you change their plight? What you do is you let them know
2: that uh, this is the way to be safe. But in the meantime, the people that run your the Gaza Strip, I wouldn't say country, your your portion of land, have to be brought to justice. Uh, uh, death or detainment have to be
1: brought to justice. On college campuses, the protests have been very strong. And of course, with Congresswoman Tlaib being censured for her comments, how can we... Find a way where both sides can have dialogue because it seems to be very hard. Uh, here, I don't, I don't know, but I'm fascinated because the
2: problem is, their fighting's coming from inside the tent. You know, they're they're chanting genocide, Joe. They're not saying genocide, right? Uh, Hamas. You know, they they have a problem with their own president that they elected. It's our president, but that's their party, and their problem is with their party. Twenty two. Congressmen with Democrats that voted for her censure. Mm-hmm. So, before we as the general public can try to find a way, maybe they as a party should try to get a message that comes out. Now, nobody wants an innocent Palestinian to die. But when you kill 1,400 innocents because it was October 7th, there's
1: going to be repercussions. There, there's no world in which there isn't. Hamas might have expected this, right? They would have known that Israel is going to have to have a long conflict in Gaza. And they may have counted on people tiring of the daily war there. Like we're famous
2: in the West for doing, like Ukraine, like Afghanistan, like Iraq. What happens after is key. And I thought when Benjamin Netanyahu came out and said, we're going to control Gaza for a while. Which the U.S. doesn't want, supposedly. Right. But do you have a choice? Do you have anybody else? So we know what it was like. We turned over Mosul and these, others, these other cities to, to the local governors. They started rocketing our embassy. We had to go back in there block by block. If they pull out and say, now you guys, now go get Mahmoud Abbas in there to run things. Any remnants of Hamas, reconfigured, retrained in Iran, sent right back, militarized again. Seven years later, new generation of Israelis, new eight-year-olds taken captive or killed. So they want to end this thing for good. Until you can prove to them security can be held by anybody else, I think they hold it.
1: Brian has a new book just out today, another one looking back at our history. It's titled Teddy and Booker T, How Two American Icons Blazed a Path for Racial Equality, linking Theodore Roosevelt, a war hero who became president in 1901, and Booker T. Washington, an influential black man in the post-Civil War South. People go, wait a second, this guy, one of the most respected men in America,
2: as an educator without peer, who's changing the way uh, race relations are envisioned and internalized, who is known as well as well in, in the UK and in Europe, and he started as a slave? Is that the story? Yeah, that's the story. And he needed partners. And one of the partners in the man of power was Teddy Roosevelt, who found up from slavery and wrote a letter, said, I gotta meet you. Mm. And then they decided he was vice president, they just said, when I'm president, if I get there, I'm going to work with you. Because I'd love that. He became president when McKinley gets shot. And immediately he calls for Booker. And they
1: worked together for seven and a half years and had a lifelong friendship. So the day he is sworn in as president when McKinley dies, he writes a letter to Booker T and invites him. But their meeting... He also apologized for <laughs> having to put off their meeting. But their meeting is a dinner at the White House. And I don't think either of them expected the reaction they got it was horrendous and america was not ready
2: for a black man even booker t washington to eat with a white family happened to be the first family of the country with in black the, servants right in the in the second mansion great point and it was so impactful it rippled throughout the south i mean i can't even read the headlines out loud i've included, mm. included them in the book in the north it was not that big of a deal and there were times frederick douglas i for example when when uh I found this out when Governor Roosevelt was governor of New York. He had blacks all the time. He like, why don't you stay and sleep all over? Because I got this huge mansion. Why don't you stay? Oh, absolutely. He didn't think anything of it. He's like, I got to work with this guy. When we're done with dinner, let's go, go in the study and let's go work some more. So they both were so blown away by the their negative reaction, they realized they might have hurt their cause. And that was the worst thing. But John McCain mentioned the dinner and the outrage that surrounded it when he lost in 2008. And he said, you know, a set decades ago, It was a big deal when a black man came to eat with a white president. Now, well, that black man will be hosting the next dinner. Look how far America's come. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to do it. Before you take a knee at a football game, which is your right, or take a knee at a World Cup game, which is your right, I think you should have a perspective on how hard people worked and how much they sacrificed in order to move America forward. Fundamentally, they agreed on one thing. They loved the country. They wanted to make it better. They knew it was the best around, and they both had opportunities to go anywhere. Teddy Roosevelt, not just a rich guy, he had asthma, he had huge intestinal issues, could never leave the house as a kid. He went through a hellacious upbringing where all he could do was feed his mind, not build
1: his body. He overcame that the rest of his life. When you talk about Booker T. Washington, one of the things that I, I find interesting is that some people, as the movement for freedom grew... Some people were critical of him because, for instance, his speech that was so well thought of in 1895 in Atlanta, Georgia, didn't really call for a conflict or a clash. He talked about blacks and whites living together, but in the framework of the culture of the time, it wasn't calling for a change, calling for them to live together, even though they were considered by the whites in, in equal. If he
2: was too much of an activist, Tuskegee would have paid the price. And he had to do the impossible in the South, address a black and white audience who wanted to hear something different. And he both gave them what they wanted. And a lot of people had tears in their eyes saying, listen, I know how you feel about us. I know how we feel about you. We're not a threat to you. We just like an opportunity to live our dreams too. And he told white people, you know, you do what you do, we'll do what we do, but keep an eye on us because no one's going to stop us. We are, we're on a roll and uh, the sky's the limit. And at the end of it, I think it was Grover Cleveland was in the audience and he couldn't believe how great this speech was and how, the, how on, on the money it was and how motivational it was. And it was printed everywhere because I think fundamentally white people knew the injustice of segregation and they didn't know what to do about it. Just like in slavery, you talk, you read Jefferson, you read Washington. They go, slavery's awful, but how do I get out of it? Mm. I was born into it. Took a long how time. How do I get out of it? Took a long and they time. And he used to say to John Adams, "Yeah, you're condemning us, but you're in the North. You don't need labor, <laughs> right. Right? right? You know, so you're you're living a businessman's life. Uh, we are we are there. If if I let go of all my slaves, I lose everything. And as is, just do it anyway. I know people watching at home, but just put yourself in the mind of 1750, not in 19, you know, 2023. So he was." They said, listen, this is what we're in. Just watch me. And all he did was get more and more fans and supporters. You tell people they're evil and they're bad and we're coming for you. Even if you are wrong, you're going to be defensive. You're not going to help them. At the end of this, Andrew Carnegie, uh, uh, Julian Rosenwald, um, J.P. Morgan, how can I help? What can I do? They made him take a vacation. He goes, listen, you're working too hard. I want to pay your salary. You got to retire. He goes, no, if you give me money, it's going to the school. And they go, will you at least take a vacation? They were worried about him. Wait, a rich black man, the richest man in the world, worried about this guy who runs a school, a historical black college in the South. And it shows you the goodness of people, even though they were in a time in which uh, segregation and racism was, was rampant. But they saw the goodness in a person. And I can imagine how many people were inspired seeing this black man from the South work with this guy from the North called Teddy Roosevelt. How many people looked at them and said, well, little black kids, and little white kids go, I don't see any difference in race. If they could work together. I can. They'd never really wrote an autobiography. We not, not, why not known how many people they inspired, but the relationship I think is worth chronicling.
1: The book is Teddy and Booker T. How two American icons blazed a path for racial equality. Brian Kilmeade. Host, of course, of Fox & Friends, weekday mornings for the Ryan Gilmead Show and the new book. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Appreciate Brian. It. Good to see you.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
5: This is Stephen Moore with your Fox News commentary coming up.
3: When Democrats went to vote Tuesday, abortion may have been on their minds. In the now red state of Ohio, 56 percent of voters approved Measure 1, amending the state constitution to preserve an individual's right to make and carry out one's own reproductive decisions. That would include birth control, fertility treatments, miscarriage and abortion. Veronica Ingham was the campaign manager for the abortion issue in Ohio, and she said Wednesday morning, Because Ohioans value reproductive freedom, support abortion rights and saw through the anti-abortion extremist lies. In Virginia, abortion was not on the ballot, but the state's Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, had discussed trying to pass a ban on abortion after 15 weeks, with exceptions. To get it through the legislature, he campaigned to keep the House Republican and flip the state Senate to Republican.
6: I think one of my aspirations was to find a place to come together on one of these most difficult topics. So abortion is, a, is, a, is potentially one of the most difficult topics in Virginia and around the nation.
3: Democrats not only held the state Senate, but they took back control of the state house. And in Kentucky, where there's a total ban on abortion, incumbent Democratic Governor Andy Bashir held onto the seat in the red state. And after he won, he thanked young woman Hadley Duvall, who appeared in this ad for Bashir.
4: I
0: was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron.
3: Cameron, the state's Republican attorney general who supported Kentucky's abortion ban, lost to Bashir. Now with these results in hand, the pundits and pollsters look ahead to what all of this means for 2024.
4: So we've seen that for a while. Abortion is a very, very big issue, and it's not
3: necessarily coming up in the polls as what issues are most important to your day-to-day life. Lee Carter is president of the Slansky & Partners.
4: What we are seeing is that if you think back to the Ohio um, you know, generic ballot initiative on abortion, it had record turnout, and we saw the same thing happen in the polls, and we saw also in the midterm. People are coming out on the issue of abortion. They're not necessarily coming out for their candidates. This issue is one that is transcending a lot more. And we've seen this in polling about seven in 10 independent women say one of the primary reasons that they're going to go to the polls if they're in a state where this is an issue is abortion. Uh, nine out of 10 Democrats say the primary reason they're going to go to the polls if this is an issue that's uh, important to their state, that's going to be the primary driver. So this is mm-hmm. going to be a real issue for Republicans going into 2024.
3: When it comes to Ohio, right, this is no longer a swing state, right? It's it's red. And yet voters, as mm-hmm. you noted, went to the polls to enshrine a right to an abortion in their in their constitution, right? I mean, how significant is is that for that to have happened in Ohio?
4: I think it's very significant. And I think what what Republicans need to remember, um, certainly those that are running for office, is this isn't just about abortion and people saying I need to get an abortion. This is many people saying this is about protecting mothers. It's about protecting choice. And historically, whenever you're on the side of banning or boycotting, you're losing. Um, and no matter what that issue is, when you're on the side of banning or boycotting, banning um, abortion in this case, it's a losing issue. Um, it's very antithetical to American values where we believe that we have freedom uh, to choose, that we don't want government involved in all of our decisions. But it's a really hard thing to understand if you are pro-life and you think that that child is a, uh, is a, is a human being that deserves protection. Um, but most people are looking at the saying this is a a woman's right to choose, um, and and actually, if you if you take that away from us, we're going to be putting women backwards. Um, and so, when you look at a state like Ohio, which is a red-leaning state, you're going to see that there's been a big shift and big movement um, on how people view this. And interestingly enough, in September, you know, Donald Trump was really talking about how important of an issue this is. He said, "Look, we took Roe versus Wade back," but he really talks about how Republicans haven't been able to articulate a message on this. And he talks about how Rhonda Sanders' stand on abortion was a big political misstep, and he's not wrong. It's a very, very important issue to women, and one that could really change the dynamics in 2024.
3: And in Virginia, do you think how much of a factor was abortion? Do you think I know there were a lot of ads about it, but abortion wasn't on the ballot, right? It was the Republican governor saying that if he has a Republican legislature, he could get a you know a, a, a ban passed. I know he. Backed off the word ban, but that he could get like sort of a, a 15 week ban passed if, if he had a Republican legislature. W- was that driving voters in these you know state house and state senate races?
4: I think there's no question mm-hmm. that it absolutely drove voters out. Um, and this was a big upset for Youngkin. I think this was he was going to use this as a you know launching pad for his his more nationwide platform, and and, and it failed. Um, and mm. I think the thing that he walked back the the language of ban too late. The fact that he was actually putting out a, a choice to 15 weeks is one that is pretty progressive as far as Republicans go. And I think he really misspoke um, from a language and messaging mm. perspective. I think his policy actually is one that many people would agree with. If you look at polling on how people view this, I think most people agree that 15 weeks is by is a time where a woman should be able to make a decision, and it's in line with what we see with with laws all over the world, not just here in the United States. So I think he, in his language, made it sound like he was more, more right than he, um, in fact, was. And, um, you know, the Democrats certainly use that in advertisements over and over again. And I can't emphasize this enough. When you are talking about banning, you are going to lose in almost every issue. Americans do not like the concept of bans.
3: So then, Lee, what's the path forward for Republicans? Because the Republicans would propose, right? If you ask Glenn Youngkin, if you ask a Tim Scott, they would say, "Let's let's let's try a 15 week what?" Because anything you say there, any law you pass there, a federal law that says we're going to put a cap at at a week at a week marker, Democrats are going to turn around and say that is a ban. And so, you even if you don't use the word ban or boycott, the other side will. That's right. And I think Democrats are smart to use that
4: language. It's one that really resonates um for their cause. So Republicans I think are going to have to find a very pro-woman message that um is it, it goes beyond just the 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 15-week decision period, which is maybe what you can talk about it as, say people, you know, women have a right to abortion up to to 15 weeks have a decision period, but they need a pro-woman, pro-mother agenda. Because one of the things that you think about, you think about a woman right now who's struggling mm-hmm to make ends meet, who might not have a father with a job at home, might have multiple children and already can't afford, if she gets pregnant, what choice does she have? And what are we going to provide her? So that the easiest choice or the best choice for her is to keep that child. The Republicans seem to find a message that includes um, a very pro-mother, pro-woman um, uh, platform that they don't have right now. Right now, they're seen um, as almost anti woman as if you're choosing the baby over the mother. And what it has to be is something that's like, if this is an all of the above solution where you the, we want to make it the easiest decision for women to choose the baby um, as well.
3: Yeah. They tell you when you're pregnant or when your kids are young that, you know, the best thing for them is a happy and stable mom. So if you go down this road, you know, helping women, does that cost money? You know, are we talking about like paid leave? Does this open up a whole can of worms? Like where you need to figure out, some policy here if you're going to encourage women to keep their babies?
4: Yeah, you do. I mean, there there are absolute policy ramifications here. And whether it is paid hey, leave or whether it's figuring out how to continue support for, for Head Start or whether it is universal child care um, or access of some, some kind or tax credits to women who make this decision who need, need the help, there's got to be some policy implication here that says it's beyond uh, making this just about choosing the baby over the mother we've got to have have support for the mother that makes the right decision thankfully i'm not in the policy making arena but there's no doubt that they're <laughs> going to have
3: to they're going to have to reckon with this <laughs> um just a couple more for you the, it sounds like you're saying in no uncertain terms this this is now a single issue for a, a lot of voters for those for that 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 desired independent suburban woman mom voter that that swing voter this for her this is a single issue topic voting topic
4: That's correct Now what does that mean in terms of you know the presidential election next year Well Joe Biden is really unpopular he's losing in a lot of polls but what we are seeing is that Kennedy is polling really well I mean he's got 24% of the vote in some of the most recent polls So what does that mean it could mean that independent women who say, I can't stand Biden, but I wouldn't vote for Trump are going to vote uh, for a third party candidate who might be more moderate. What does that do? The advantage there might go to Donald Trump in that case. Um, but I think that Republicans would be make a huge mistake if they don't deal with this. And I think Nikki Haley knows that. She talked about it in the last debate, Said this is this is going to be, you know, what we're going to have to, to reckon with if the Democrats have a big night on election night. And they did.
3: Yeah, I think my last one for you is it kind of dovetails with that, you know, we look at these poll numbers that just came out of The New York Times, where voters in five of six swing states go for Trump over Biden, like you just said, he's uh the the president suffering uh, with his poll numbers. So on the on the presidential level, just on the presidential level, you look at those numbers, does abortion not matter? Are voters sort of parsing this and saying this is different at that level, we need to, if you're going to vote on abortion, that might be a state's issue.
4: I think they might be parsing it. We're seeing a lot of um, results where you have a split legislator from the, from from the governorship. And I think we might see the same thing happen um, at the federal level. But I think when it comes to looking at that polling, um, it's important to remember that there's certain states where this is mattering the most and those are where um, abortion Mm -hmm. really is uh, on, on the ballot. So when you look at those, those swing states where Trump is winning, Those aren't necessarily the states that are most concerned about this issue. But I also have a couple of caveats that I want to talk about. Number one, Joe Biden's polling is abysmal. And in this moment, the only polling that's worse than his is the approval rating of Republicans in Congress. (laughs) So What we felt really might be a problem that Republicans are having because they're seen as a divided party. People aren't sure what they're getting, who they are. You know, there's so much infighting within the party. It seems like there's almost three parties within a party. So, what is this all about? I think when we get to the election next year, there could be an answer to that. If Donald Trump's in charge. We'll know exactly what we're getting. Um, and and people need to get in line. But part of the problem that we saw, Republicans don't have a single platform, a single policy. We don't know what it means to be a Republican today. Does it mean that we're uh, the the party of of Donald Trump? Does it mean that we're typical conservatives? Does it mean, what does it mean? And I think that is something that Republicans wrestle with, and certainly uh, by the election day of next year, there needs to be a clear answer to.
3: Mm. Lee Carter, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time.
4: Anytime. Thank you for having me.
6: Meet the American who
7: popularized the drinking straw. Humans have long sipped the liquid pleasures of life through hollow pieces of glass or straw, but after inspiration hit Marvin Stone when he was drinking a mint julep in the late 1800s, the industry would be forever changed. Marvin Chester Stone was born in Portage County, Ohio on April 4th, 1842, and was always said to be a curious boy with a tinkerer's mind. His smarts led him to study at Oberlin College in Ohio, but his university career was cut short after the nation erupted in civil War. Stone promptly left his studies to join the 7th Ohio Volunteer Infantry as a private. Though after howering battles in Gettysburg and Chancellorsville left Stone wounded, he was disabled from active duty. His next stop would be Washington, D.C., where he was sent to recover. Here, Stone initially set out to manufacture paper cigarette holders, but it wouldn't take long for his career to take a revolutionary turn. After work one day, Ruber has it that Stone was sipping a mint julep through a hollow piece of rye grass. When he got caught up in his dissatisfaction with the way the grass was disintegrating into his drink, leaving an unpleasant residue. And knowing that glass straws were considered a luxury item, Stone wanted to invent something new that would be effective and accessible. Thus, the paper straw was born. His first model was created when Stone wrapped strips of paper around a pencil, removed them, and then glued them together. But soon after, he fashioned a sturdier version made of manila paper coated in paraffin that proved to be a bit more resistant to sogginess. Before he knew it, Stone received a patent for his artificial straw in 1888, and by 1890, his straws had taken the world by storm. Decades later, however, the paper straw business took a major hit when the plastic straw was introduced to the industry. In the 1860s, when the plastic straw rose to stardom, it quickly became the product of choice for both producers and consumers due to cheaper, easier to produce and far sturdier than paper. Though plastic straws weren't perfect, which is something many Americans began paying attention to in just the last few years, around 2017, plastic straws began being condemned worldwide for the harm they were doing to the environment, polluting beaches, endangering wildlife wildlife, and releasing chemicals into the atmosphere. After those concerns swept the nation, Marvin Stone's company, which eventually became Ardvark Straws, saw a 4,900 percent increase in paper straw sales from 2017 to 2018. Fast forward to now, and the U.S. paper straw market is expected to grow from $1.51 billion to $2.23 billion in 2030, all thanks to Marvin Stone, a mint julep and a revolutionary invention. I'm Gianna Jolosi, go to the lifestyle section of foxnews.com for more of these incredible American stories.
2: Hey, it's Will Cain, co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend. Join me as I share my thoughts on a wide range of topics from sports and pop culture to politics and
6: business. The Will Cain Podcast. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary.
5: Stephen Moore. What's on your mind? In announcing his move from Seattle to Miami, Jeff Bezos has become the latest of a long procession of prominent business icons and celebrities to abandon Blue State for Red State America. As the man who built the trillion dollar tech behemoth, Amazon, he is now the wealthiest American to flee to a low tax state. There is a cautionary tale here for Blue State America, which day after day is being bled to death by this steady stream of migration of millions of people and tens of billions of capital to red states. Washington state was, until recently, the only blue state in America with no income tax. For many years, it also had no inheritance or no capital gains tax. This light taxation on business investment and income contributed to Washington becoming one of the fastest growing states and a mecca for world-class businesses a list that includes Microsoft, Amazon, Costco, and Starbucks. Being one of nine states with a zero income tax was in many ways Washington's greatest comparative advantage, especially because neighboring California and Oregon had among the highest income tax rates, both above 10%. But that's all ended. Progressives in Seattle took charge and started the relentless Soak the Rich campaign. This started with the state adopting a death tax that can reach 19% for millionaires and billionaires in Washington. That's one of the highest rates in the nation, all for the privilege of dying in Washington state. That is something Jeff Bezos has decided he will not do. Then last year, the state adopted a 6% capital gains tax, even though the state's constitution prohibits an income tax. There may be no one on the planet that has more capital gains than Jeff Bezos. And now the legislature is debating a 1% annual income tax. Who do you think they had in mind to pay that? So you answer the question. Is it just the sunny weather that is driving Mr. Bezos to flee? Bezos stated in his announcement that he has amazing memories of Seattle, where he has lived for three decades and built Amazon. Bezos never mentioned the tax advantages of residing in Florida, and almost no one in the media, not CNN, not the New York Times, nazi NBC mentioned the tax advantages of this relocation to florida i don't know anything about jeff bezos personal finances but he has formed one of the largest family foundations in the world with multi-billions of dollars of his wealth that now will forever escape taxation bezos politics swing liberal but almost nobody forks over money to the tax man if they don't have to tax avoidance is one of the world's oldest businesses and a grand american tradition dating back to the Boston Tea Party. Washington State may learn a painful lesson here. If you sock it to the rich, the rich will get out of Dodge. Bezos declared that Seattle will always have a place in my heart, but not his wallet. I'm Stephen Moore, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and a co-founder of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. My latest book is Govzilla, How the Relentless Growth of Government is Devouring Our Economy.
6: from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Kudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Kudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.